You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky, episode 26. I'm Jennifer, your host, and I am joined by our regulars, Jen and Chris. And we've got two guests with us today, um, Dallas Kelly Kerr and Alan Spears. So thank you guys for being on. Um, They are with the National Parks Conservation Association, better known as NPCA. And I'm going to introduce both of them and then let them kind of tell you a little bit more about what they do and what NPCA is. So Alan is uh, uses real life stories in a conversational style to connect with his audiences. He's a longtime NPCA legislative representative and resident historian and has helped ensure that important national stories are preserved for posterity. Recent victories include the addition of five national monuments to the park system. Those are Fort Monroe, Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad, Colonel Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers, Pullman National Monument, and Birmingham Civil Rights. And he remains the only NPCA staff person ever to be rescued from a tidal marsh by park police helicopter. So I can't wait to hear that story, Alan. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Dallas Kelly Kerr is the Senior Manager of Community Affairs for NPCA's Texas, Oklahoma Regional Office. She's an Austin native who always knew she wanted to work in politics. And for the past 20 years, she's represented nonprofit organizations and private companies at all levels of government. She first connected with NPCA as a regional and national council member working to secure the UN World Heritage designation for the San Antonio missions. That's really cool. Uh, Dallas was then brought on staff at NPCA in support of the 2016 National Park Service Centennial Year. She works to educate, engage, and empower new leaders, or I'm sorry, empower new and more diverse advocates in support of our public lands. And she created the Texas Teen and Young Leaders Council who work alongside her and her colleagues to protect parks. Um, her favorite national park is in Texas is Amistad National Recreation Area, which boasts beautiful waters and endangered catfish and historic ancient rock art. So you guys are pretty busy folks and I'm really interested to hear more about uh, what you do and, and uh, what NPCA does. So Dallas or Alan, would one of y'all like to take it away? Um, maybe I'll start. I think uh, one of the things we have to do is maybe not just talk about who we are, but talk about who we aren't. So NPCA is not the National Precast Concrete Association, nor are we the National Police Canine Association. And there are actually probably another 12 NPCAs that are out there. So we're the National Parks Conservation Association. We're also not the National Park Foundation. Uh, we are a 101-year-old advocacy organization. Uh, We consider ourselves to be the leading voice of the American people on behalf of the national parks, and we were established in 1919, three years after the National Park Service was established, Uh, and the director of the National Park Service was actually one of the people who helped pull NPCA together. So we have been doing the work of protecting national parks since our establishment, and it's work that we continue to this day. That's awesome. I am glad you clarified all of those acronyms for us, because I'm sure many folks were... uh... We're thinking that. Uh, Dallas, would you add anything to that? Absolutely. Um, Our founder, Stephen Mather, was the first director of the National Park Service. 
And he and his colleague, Robert Sterling Yard, who was the first chief of education for the National Park Service, they founded National Parks Conservation Association because they thought there should be a citizen voice outside of the federal government speaking up and speaking out for parks. And that is the work we do each and every day. As Alan says, we are open 24 seven. We are carrying on the drumbeat and carrying sometimes very, very heavy buckets of water because we believe that the stories of our country continue to unfold each and every day. And if we aren't here to protect them for 100 years from now, who's gonna tell the stories you know, that we are living right now? Yeah, that's, that's a great mission. And um, you guys are able to do some of the more political like lobbying, I guess, uh, that you wouldn't be able to do if you were a governmental organization. So um, you can truly be that standalone organization that's looking out for our parks. Um, so today we're going to talk about public lands. If, if y'all haven't figured it out, that's our topic. And we're going to kind of delve into, um, I guess, first, what is the history of, of public, or what are public lands and why are they important in our country? It's a great question, and uh, I'd start by saying, generally speaking, at least as it re it's, re it's related to national parks, these are lands or places that have been reserved in order to protect their resources, natural, cultural, historic, and scenic, ideally in perpetuity for the benefit, enjoyment, and inspiration of the public. So uh, it's pretty neat, uh, and it's pretty inherently democratic in terms of a concept that some of the most beautiful cultural, historic, and recreational places on the continent have been reserved for the benefit and enjoyment of the public and not for private interests. And so that's where we start with, uh, that's the bright, shiny idea, at least for the national parks and the reservation of public lands. And awesome. And this was kind of heralded as the great American experiment, right? Because uh, we didn't really have that before, you know, the, the National Park Service was started. It's interesting because uh, in the middle of the American Civil War in 1864, President Abraham Lincoln um, manages something called the Yosemite Land Grant. So it, it was not the creation of Yosemite National Park that comes later and Yellowstone is the first national park that's established in 1872. But if you think about it, 1864 was one of the bloodiest years of a bloody four year struggle. And even in that period, we had a leadership and a president who understood that the protection in perpetuity of these places was important. And so Abraham Lincoln laid the groundwork for what would become Yellowstone or Yosemite National Park. So these have always been important places uh, for um, Americans and for our government, for our leadership. We take them seriously. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's great that we had the leadership and um, foresight all those years ago, even with everything going on to set aside some of those natural wonders and uh, cultural sites, you know, even later on to allow people to enjoy them for generations. So um, Dallas, were you, is there anything you would add to that or? So now I have to unmute. So you gave me a, an additional technical duty. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, when we're talking about Abraham Lincoln, one of our greatest presidents and his work, um, is playing out around the globe right now and the concepts we have to bring forward um, the equality of citizens and the equal voices of citizens. 
And when you look at national parks, most people think of Yellowstone, Yosemite, Big Bend, Grand Canyon, but it's so much more than the proper NPs, if you will. We have 419 national public park or national parks in our country. And two thirds of those are the cultural and historical parks. And that's where Alan and I get to spend a lot of our time. Um, our personal focus, our personal education, you know, he and I are students of history and history is about storytelling. And as we are continuing our work today, we look back to President Lincoln and several of the sites Alan and I are working on are bringing up those, so, those same themes of equality and protectorism that we can then memorialize and honor within the National Park Service, hopefully in, in, in perpetuity. Pretty cool stuff, man. Um, ladies, did you have any questions so far or anything you'd want to add? I think I was next with the question. <laughs> but you, Mine was, what is the history of the public lands in the U.S.? But you guys have sort of already touched on a few. It just sounds really a lot more rich than I think initially thought of when you think of public lands. I think a lot of people can take them for granted and they're just there, but it sounds like there's a really rich and diverse history as to why it started and where it started. Well, yeah, I think that um, there is that history, and but it's also a history that's somewhat troubled because many of the places that we know as national parks right now began as ancestral homelands or the living spaces mm -hmm. and places of indigenous or First Nations people. And so although we begin this with this ideal of a democratic virtue and values that we invest in national parks and protecting them in perpetuity, we also have to reckon with the fact that in many instances, the ability to call something a national park began with our desire policies related to removal of First Nations people. Um, and so that's something that we're still struggling to come to grips with as the National Parks Conservation Association, as the Department of the Interior, as the National Park Service, and in working with tribes to create essentially a more just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive national park system and system of public lands. The other part of this, which I think is pretty neat also, is that like historiography, things change. And so focuses change. Um, Dallas has said, you know, we're both history people and I love the historic components of our national park system. But up until about 1933, when something called the Reauthorization Act was kicked in, most of the Civil War battlefields and American Revolutionary War battlefields that we now have in our national park system were actually maintained by the Department of the Army. Um, or the War Department, rather. And so they were transferred to the National Park Service because there was the thinking at that point in time, a lot of the veterans from the Civil War are dying off or had died off. And you need to not just have these places open for people to wander around and not understand really what's going on, but to have them protected and preserved and then also interpreted in an appropriate way to help enhance public understanding of the events that took place. So we have seen a national park system that has evolved over time. And the really interesting thing about this is, how is it going to evolve in the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years? And that's part of the interesting ride that we're along right now um, at NPCA. Yeah, I've been listening to um, the book National Parks by Ken Burns. And it's really, it, you know, remarkable to me the, uh, the history of how a lot of these parks started 
because like you said, it wasn't just in, in all cases, it wasn't just passing a bill, right? There was usually some group or some person who really advocated for a specific space to be set aside. And there was often a lot of pushback from locals, whether it was because it was their land, perceived as their land, or it was, um, they just wanted to kind of make money off of it, right? I mean, I think Yellowstone was one of those places where people were just coming in and kind of turned into a carnival and Niagara was the same way, even though that's not technically a national park, but that seemed to kind of happen for a really long time until someone was able to finally convince Congress or whoever. And even then it didn't, <laughs> didn't always mean, you know, they were completely protected for a while, but it, it's definitely an interesting history to look at. Just a question that I had was, does setting aside land for public use mean it will stay that way forever? I think that's why we say in perpetuity because then we're not giving it the forever moniker or that just could be my personal definition. Um, no, it doesn't mean that in as the straight answer as we've seen in Texas um, with our 4% total public lands and I believe 2% are federal. Um, we've seen the general land office have to take land off of its books because they need to put it back into a revenue stream. Ideally, it would be protected through buffers or really strong community support that would keep it that way. But there is nothing saying that Congress or an administration <clears throat> can't change its mind. And I think we've got some pretty prime examples of that, unfortunately, um, in particular with uh, Bears Ears National Monument and Grand, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. We have seen with the Trump administration reductions of Bears Ears. Uh, which is BLM property, not National Park Service property, by about 84% from the original National Monument um, boundaries that were set forth during the Obama years. Grand Staircase Escalante has been reduced by about half. And that was a National Monument that was declared um, right in the middle of uh, the Bill Clinton administration. So the fact that these areas get established unfortunately does not mean that they are necessarily protected uh, from a legal standpoint or resource protection standpoint forever. Um, this sounds like a really good place to put in a plug for who we are and what we do, because as an advocacy organization, we work with Congress and administrations and the public and our members and supporters to make sure that we are trying to make parks uh, have the, the resources and the backing and the support that they deserve and they need from a legislative perspective, from a policy perspective, to make sure that once these places are stood up, that they stay stood up. Now, I'll give an example here in Texas. Um, you know, parks don't happen overnight, even though Alan and I have our projects that we'd really like to happen um, overnight tonight. But we were working with the San Antonio community for the World Heritage designation of the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park and the Alamo. So the Alamo is um, owned by the state of Texas because we're not likely to give that one up anytime soon, but it is part of the five Franciscan missions that are uh, the oldest still standing. And we came in as a brand new office of MPCA and the community had already spent a good 15 years rallying together, trying to unite um, many different interests across the city to put forth an application to the United States State Department so they would be considered for the United Nations World Heritage designation. But then using our 1.3 million members and supporters across the country, 
you can imagine what kind of attention that those kinds of emails and phone calls and opinions in the newspapers, what attraction that can bring to really elevate um, an issue or a park or a protection. And so Alan and I are really fortunate that we get to find the community members, huddle together and then connect them to decision makers so that we are showcasing the voice of the citizenry. And it's not just um, Alan and I and our colleagues sit around one day and think something up um, because we think it's great. It really is rooted in the community and then they get to affect the change. So yep. these are some of the threat. I mean, I guess some of the threats to all of these lands is obviously it could be taken away. Are there any other threats that you guys experience and is there anything that we can do about it? Um. I'd share with you, I think one of the biggest threats at this point in time is uh, actually relevancy. We have changing demographics in this country. We're having national conversations right now about race and maybe seeing that we're a little bit behind on that issue. But the same thing is impacting national parks. We have had a largely white constituency that has thankfully been leading the efforts to protect and promote these places for decades and decades and decades. And what we're seeing right now is that there is not necessarily a transfer of that stewardship to communities of color, to black and brown people. And that's not just a diversity thing or a, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do to make sure the constituency for national parks is more diverse. It actually plays out in terms of our ability to win on issues. And so if we wanna win on park funding, if we wanna win on park management issues, if we wanna make sure that the places that we have stood up as national parks are well protected into their second century, then we really do need the most, the broadest, most diverse, most informed and engaged constituency that we can manage so that when an organization like NPCA or some of our brother and sister organizations puts the call out to say that there are threats to places like Grand Staircase Escalante uh, or Bears Ears or even the Frederick Douglass home or Amistad, other places, that we have at the ready a group of constituents who really care about national parks for a variety of reasons, who are prepared to take action to make sure that parks are protected in the way that they need to be protected. So the relevancy issue is huge. And one of the things that NPCA is doing in conjunction with a number of other partners and some of our allies on Capitol Hill uh, is to try to make sure that the park system is as diverse as it can possibly be. That's related to stories that it tells and promotes, but also to the people who are working for the National Park Service. Uh, sometimes people are reluctant to visit places where they don't see themselves in the workforce or in the, in the faces of the people who are visiting there. There's also the relevancy issue, which is, um, you know, if it's all about um, war and conflict and there isn't anything there that talks about civil rights or women's history or other things like that, then we might be losing constituents, we might be losing people. Uh, so we wanna make it possible for them to connect to national parks in the way that many of us already have. Uh, I'll give you one quick example. Uh, we've got about 419 units in the national park system. Dallas mentioned that already. Out of that 419, we have maybe 10, maybe 11, maybe 12 units that were expressly established or designated to commemorate some aspect of American women's history. So that's 10 to 12 out of 419. I try never to do math in public, 
but I can tell you that's an underrepresentation of 50 to 51% of the population in this country. So we've got a ways to go, even just to ensure that women's history is being promoted effectively and accurately and in a just and inclusive way. And we're working on that right now. Are there things that we as average citizens can do to help with that effort, um, to help you know, encourage both the park system to be more inclusive and encourage folks who maybe wouldn't, you know, go to a park or, or think about the importance of the park system um, to engage? I'm going to say the easiest thing um, you could do is go to npca.org and sign up to get our emails. And that way you'll be kept apprised of the work we're doing nationally as well as here in Texas and send that you know, to someone who who either doesn't know anything about parks or maybe you think they'd find the story particularly interesting. And write your write your congressperson. Let them know how you feel about public lands, what you think is either missing or is being misinterpreted or misshapen. Um, they want to hear from you and write to your um, local newspaper, write an opinion letter, write just a short letter to the editor. Go ahead and take a chance, have your voice heard. Um, I know that's easier said than done, but that's something that we've been doing at MPCA for about the past five years, creating something called a civic voice workshop and teaching people some of the how to's in advocacy. So specifically, how do you write, um, you know, a three to 10 sentence letter to your editor? What are the elements you want to put in for an opinion piece so it'll get picked up in a newspaper? Um, and then we've got councils all around the country that spend time out in parks volunteering, but also um, put on awareness campaigns so we can try to reach the most diverse group of advocates that we can find. Um, and you know what? Go to a park and take a friend who's never been when we can all do it safely, of course. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the personal thing, parks are fun. And uh, Dallas has done a great job running so many of these civic voice lessons. <clears throat> and But maybe before you get to the civics lesson, maybe it's just recalling how fun it is to actually be out in a national park, to be on a trail, to walk a battlefield, to visit a historic site. And in some instances, to see the same chair, the same books, the same wallpaper that some very famous person who's got incredible significance related to American history saw. Um, that, I think, is a really good way to develop the the passion for national parks. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my parents started taking me to Gettysburg National Military Park when I was probably about six or seven years old. My parents were not parks people, uh, but they were looking for uh, something that they could do during the gas shortage in the 1970s that only required you know, less than one tank of gas, and there was no entrance fee at Gettysburg. It was free, and we could walk around and look at the statues of the guys with guns, and I could climb all over the cannons with my you know, very loud plaid pants from the 1970s that would have been louder than any Civil War artillery, um, and just really have a great time. And that was really how I got hooked on national parks. It's also how I got my interest in American history. It was by being in that setting and understanding that when I looked in a book and I saw writing about a place like Little Round Top or Big Round Top or Seminary Ridge or Cemetery Hill, that 
the places that were so important in the summer of 1863 were right there and I could walk to them. I could look at them because they had been protected in perpetuity. And there's something really neat about being able to traverse a landscape that has hundreds of years of history associated with it and to be in a place where some of the most significant events in American history or world history took place. That's far out. That's right on. And so maybe it's beginning to start with that kind of enthusiasm and passion. And then to say to people, this might not always be here, or it might be here, but there could be a car dealership next to it or a uranium mine just outside of it, or it's not going to have enough funding. And so the rangers who led the walks and the tours when I was a kid, we might not have them for your children. And then from there, that's a really good place to start building out that powerful constituency that can go to bat for national parks. Yeah, I mean, you know, Alan, you talked about you talked about doing trips, you know, under a tank of gas. And right now it might have to be a few tanks of gas when we can travel, you know, because folks aren't going to get on airplanes. So there could be a national park or public land of any kind. Right. You could do your city park. But has how many people do you know who have never seen the Milky Way? I mean, we see it in the textbooks. Until August of last year. <laughs> In Canada. And was that out in Marfa? Was no, that when you went to Marfa? I was okay. up visiting Chris. <laughs> she came and visited us last year for a week. Wow, and so we pretty. used to live out by um, on the shore of Lake Huron. And uh, yeah, so she got to see, there's very little light pollution out there. So she got to see the Milky Way. Yeah. And that's so incredible that you used to live by it. And I'm sure you took numerous people that went out and you know, I remember the first time I looked at it at Big Bend and I'm like, is that, I didn't want to be wrong of it being the Milky Way, but even though Amistad um, is not a dark sky park, it is very dark um, in Del Rio, Texas, it still wasn't as dark as Big Bend, which is a dark sky park. So I think there is so much wonder that can be found and part of the organic act um, that put the national parks in place is for the enjoyment of. So it is for protections, it is for environmental um, causes, but it's also for the enjoyment of, as Alan said. And if you don't love it, then you're not going to protect it. Yeah, and I think just like with anything else, if we get, um, if we bring folks when they're kids, then they'll be more likely to advocate for it when they're older and, and care about it, like, like Alan and I'm sure most of us that have <clears throat> been to places like that. I think I have pictures of me hanging off of one of those Gettysburg soldiers' arms or something <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> they, those aren't very well protected from children climbing on them, I guess. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Does anybody have any stories of, uh, you know, parks that they visited that have kind of changed them or just the way that they look at the natural world? I mean, Dallas and Alan, you've, you've shared a few, but um, I'm just curious, ladies, if you have any experiences. Yeah, I remember um, in high school, I went with some friends to Garner State Park. Their family went every year for 4th of July. And it was the first time in a really long time that I saw like lightning bugs. And I don't know why that like really excited me. But it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, my gosh, I remember seeing lightning bugs in Pennsylvania when I was like a little, little kid when I lived there. And I had never seen them in like Houston where I you know, grew up. And so <laughs> I was just amazed. But yeah, and I loved climbing. They have like a mountain there that we climbed. And um, 
it was it was a fun trip so yeah I, I enjoy open outdoor space for sure and we've been hiking a lot lately too around Texas so um I discovered a few new places to to get outdoors and enjoy some sunshine especially during these times <laughs> yes very necessary <laughs> Um, when I was a kid, um, my public school, when I was in the fourth grade, they used to do this big trip for all of the senior grades from four to eight to um, Tobomori, which is up uh, the tip of the Bruce Peninsula in um, Midwestern Ontario. And I didn't know at the time, I was nine, and we spent the whole day up there, and it was wonderful and rocky, and the water was freezing. Um, but it is a uh, national marine park. It's called Fathom Five. Um, National Marine Park and it's just it's gorgeous Jen you were up there last year when we took you up to Flower Pot Island that whole landscape up there is just it's otherworldly and it's beautiful and I went on a couple of hiking trips when I was a teenager to Algonquin Provincial Park and up into Tomogamy which is a beautiful area and when I was in college I actually went to school for park and forest I forget a lot of it unfortunately um, about the history of it which I should know better and I need to learn more. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's more than I think people think. And even a small conservation area, we had a conservation area, um, the next town over where I grew up and we went every year and the geese were, I remember the geese being me. They were horrible. They would hiss at you and run and at you if they even saw you had a geese or morsel jerks. of breath. They're ornery, <laughs> super ornery. Um, yeah, I remember that as a kid and always taking field trips and to these places I didn't know would have existed otherwise. You know, I didn't really visit um, many or any parks really growing up, but as an adult, I have just been like consuming all of that I can. And um, Crater Lake was, was one that like just wowed me. It was beautiful. It was just like an amazing story of how it formed and, um, you know, that was a pretty cool experience for me. And then Bryce Canyon National Park. Um, I did like this stupid, crazy four-day, four-park excursion in southern Utah. Do not recommend, especially in July. <laughs> but um, Bryce was was by far my favorite of those um, four, even though Zion and Arches get all the glory. Um, it was a lot cooler there, too. <laughs> um, I'm sure we could go on all day about all of our favorite, you know, park and outdoor areas, but I, I am curious, um, you all are specifically advocating for the national parks, um, but, but you've mentioned, you know, there's BLM land, there's, there's forest land, um, there's, you know, it seems like there's several departments that kind of manage public lands. Can you touch on the difference between those different, you know, types of land and whether you guys do any work with them as well? Yeah, I, so the national parks may be the best way to start is that the highest level of resource protection comes with a, a national park designation or the inclusion of resources within the national park system. And the other agencies within Interior, Forest Services, and Agriculture, they can be managed for a variety of uses. So BLM lands, Forest Service lands, you can harvest timber, you can, uh, in some instances, do oil and gas extraction or development, you can conduct grazing, uh, there are recreational opportunities that you might find on these lands that you wouldn't find uh, in many instances in national parks. And so that's both a blessing and it can be a curse because 
uh, once, oftentimes when uh, people who are opposed to national park designation, their opposition springs from the fact that they understand that this land would be, again, reserved for the public interest in a way that would exclude or preclude certain things from taking place on that land. And um, we think at the National Parks Conservation Association that when we get to a point of designating something as a national park, we have done our homework, the public's done its homework, the government's done its homework, and that these places deserve to be protected at that highest possible level. So that's the, that's the one major difference. Now, there are some national parks that bear the title preserve. And when you've got a preserve in the title uh, that you can allow for sometimes oil and gas extraction or hunting. Uh, and then there are other things maybe by, you know, subsistence hunting in places that are allowed by the founding charter of a particular national park. But generally speaking, their protection level is the highest that you can get for public lands. Is there anything else um, that you all want to ask or that uh, you haven't touched on maybe that we should know about, you know, public lands and NPCA in general? I have a question. Um, you mentioned something about 2% and 4% of Texas has, you know, these land designations. Is that just your <laughs> specific land designations or are you including, you know, city parks and all that into those numbers as well? I guess I'm just curious, like, if so there's a the, number for the state of Texas. Some of the state parks in Texas are very well known and very well beloved by Texans and most but we are still predominantly um, privately owned and a lot of folks don't realize they are on a publicly owned uh, piece of land or a park or a preserve when they are traversing it. Yeah, um, Texas has a pretty a pretty nice park system and I don't know how it compares in size to other states, but um, I have heard that it's it like percentage wise it's smaller because folks in Texas are much more you know pro private land ownership versus public and that's unfortunate because then there's less for everybody to enjoy but well the half I believe it's half of our state the private lands are still for agricultural uses um, so for that kind of you know food production is what it's for. Um, those lands. I don't know that we have, it depends what you would consider large if you just have them for personal recreation use. Um, you know, many of them are heritage areas within families that they've had these farming and ranching lands for over 100 years. Um, but we're going to see a lot of that breaking up um, with the current and younger generations because families don't work their lands anymore. And the number of ancestors that you have, you're going to have, you know, 26 great cousins. Um, can't divide one family plot of land into a viable agricultural use. And I think you're also going to see as those larger um, family lands are broken up, that you are going to have members of um, our generations that want to put conservation easements in them or donate them um, for the public uses. Um before we move on to kind of final thoughts, um, since we have Chris here from Canada, <laughs> uh, it, can you kind of give us, I guess, an overview of what public lands look like up there? Is there a national and then a provincial kind of hierarchy like there is here? 
Yeah, it's very similar. So there's the national parks, which are federally funded. Um, and then there's provincial parks. Um, and then there's uh, conservation areas. We have our version of BML land, which is Crown Lance. It's Miss uh, Queen Elizabeth's. That's hers. Um, but it's the same sort of thing where you can, it's it's everybody's. Um, so yeah, it's the same sort of thing in each as it's, you know, the provincial parks are funded by the province, um, conservation areas are more by the municipalities. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very similar. So recreational opportunities as well as like camping and yep. yeah, stuff like and that. So some, some of the parks around here are open now. You just can't camp overnight. So you can go for a day visit. Mm-hmm. Um, the one just outside of our town is now open for day visits. Um, but yeah, you can, there's one, um, in sort of central Ontario called Algonquin and you can go camping there in the wintertime. Um, so there's usually year round. I know up in, I can't remember if it's the Northwest territories or none of it, but there, there's a massive park up there that, um, it's so large that it's hard. Like when wildfires break out, they just let them happen because it's, it's just such a massive, massive park. Well, you guys have some beautiful land countryside out there. And one day I'm going to go to Great Bear Rainforest and Coral Reefs. I and I don't, do I don't know too. if that's, if that's a national park, but that's on my list. So I think so. we're going to do protected. it. Okay. Yeah. I just don't know at what level. Awesome. Well, um, Alan in Dallas, do you have any final thoughts? Um, anything we haven't talked about that you feel like folks should know maybe give a plug as to how people can get involved within pca i i've been a member for a few years but um if if other folks want to join and support you guys well um thank you for being a member um members rock and you guys are great and uh yes absolutely and we are a membership organization, so we do get uh, large grants from other sources. But basically, what makes the mayor go for NPCA are those, you know, hundreds of thousands of individual memberships that are happening at the twenty-five, forty-dollar level. And being a member of NPCA can get you our magazine, can get you access to our e-alerts and other things like that. But it also puts you, really, quite frankly, on the right side of history related to national parks. And you become part of a very effective organization that is helping and has been helping to protect and preserve national parks for over 100 years now. And we continue to have fights related to management policies, park funding, the relevancy issue that we we mentioned earlier before, and the notion of how we can justly diversify our national parks to include more stories. Because history doesn't stand still, not even in the middle of a pandemic. And we have to figure out how we can add the sites that deserve to be added, adequately fund the sites that we've got right now, and then make sure that the people who are managing our parks have the training, the background, and the resources they need to do the best possible job that they can. Because this is a commitment for us that's now like 106, 107 years old, and maybe going back to those Yosemite land grants uh, older than that. So we've come too far to uh, let down our commitment to our public lands and our national parks. And being a member of NPCA can help ensure that the National Park Service will enter into its second century in in a very strong fashion. So you can go to our website, www.npca.org, and you can take a look at who we are and what we do. And if that turns you on in the right ways, then you can join up and support us. Um, And there are also, uh, my colleague Dallas is in one of our regional uh, offices. 
and our regional offices also helped to drive this work in some very important ways. And um, I don't know if Dallas wants to take a moment to talk about that or anything else. Thank you, Alan, and well said. Sometimes it's not good to find follow Alan because he's so well-versed in all of these matters. But I would say when we're talking about relevancy and how you might first engage with national parks, there are myriad ways imaginable, and it's going to be personal to you of how you engage in parks. And it's going to be just as personal of how you engage with the MPCA, whether it's um, historical or cultural or large landscapes. We also work a lot to protect um, clean air and clean water and ensure that the agencies that were charged to protect these are not equally derided by administrations that don't understand the critical nature um, of having clean air and clean water. So in addition to protecting bears and protecting trees, we also protect the air that you breathe. Um, we are doing a number of park talks, so some virtual visits that we have on our website. And I know Jen got to see one where we had our uh, soldiers reenactment, so to speak, in Fort Davis National Historical Park in West Texas. And we will have more of those coming up throughout the year. Um, so we'll be sharing those with the Central Texas Planeteers. They're free to join. They're recorded on our website as well. So you can, again, share those with, with folks who you think uh, might not know. Um, we kind of lost you there at the end, Alice, but I think you were saying that most of the resources are available online on the website, social media, et cetera. Um, which of course is, as Alan said, npca.org, National Parks Conservation Association on Facebook and all of the different social media platforms. And um, did I miss anything? Does that sound sound about right? <laughs> um, and, I, and Alan, you mentioned the, the magazine uh, that, that members get. And I have to say that is one of my favorite magazines uh, to read. It's got some great content. I'm, I'm always really excited to get that one. So if you like hearing stories about our national parks or just about, you know, the, the nat natural resources in our country in general, it's got a lot of really cool stories in there. Um, are there any other resources you guys would share with our listeners as it relates to public lands, books, documentaries, anything like that that sticks out that you think would help folks better understand this or connect with the, the national park system? Yeah, I would offer maybe a couple. And uh, the first one would be, they're going to be two books. Why? Because I'm a history geek. Uh, but the first one is called We Hold the Rock. And it's actually, uh, there's a documentary by the same name, but the book talks about the Indian occupation of Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay. And this was one of the most important, significant moments in the American Indian movement. And uh, it talks about the, um, the Indian occupation of Alcatraz, which I think lasted for about two years, um, and how that empowered other American Indians and allies throughout the country to continue to make the fight for their civil rights and human rights, but also their tribal rights as domestic dependent nations in many instances. And then the second book that I would recommend is uh, one by a friend of mine named Stephanie Deutsch. It's called You Need a Schoolhouse, and it is the history of uh, businessman and philanthropist Julius Rosenwald and then the Wizard of Tuskegee, Booker T. Washington. And it's not very well known, but those two gentlemen got together in the early 1900s and using Rosenwald's philanthropy, his money, and Booker T. Washington's connections they actually wound up building about 5,300 schoolhouses for African-American children 
in 15 southern states during a period of separate and unequal education. And at some point in time, almost a third of African-American students in southern states were educated in Rosenwald schools. And uh, we don't have a Rosenwald site in the national park system, but we are working on that. There is an ongoing campaign that I'm helping to lead with a bunch of really dedicated and qualified people. And we hope to get the legislation for a special resources study passed this year so that the Park Service can take a look at the resources associated with this man and his great legacy and then return a finding on how best to create a national park. But I recommend those two things. We hold the rock and you need a schoolhouse just again to reinforce that, uh, as Dallas said in the at the start of the broadcast, that two thirds of our national parks are historic and cultural in nature. And so the National Park Service has always been in the business of protecting and preserving our nation's history. And that's work that they continue to do to this day. And I'm proud to work with them on protecting our historic and cultural resources. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you have no shortage of uh, work. When you get one park up, you just move on to the next one. There's so many awesome stories and people to honor out there. So. Well, you say it very nicely. The other way to say that is we're just greedy, greedy people. Um, but there's so much out there that we can accomplish. And, um, you know, as I said before, history doesn't stand still. And we've got new stories every day, every year that are coming forward that deserve to be told and protected at the highest possible level. And that's at the national parks level. So not everything can be a national park. That's not our aim. Uh, but we've still got a lot of room in which we can grow out this system to make it more representative and um, even more impactful and compelling for people. That's awesome. And yeah, I'm a history major myself, so I appreciate what you guys do to, <laughs> to bring history to life and, and get more people uh, involved and appreciate that. Um, Dallas, did you have any resources, anything else you would share with our listeners? You know, I always think if there's a topic that interests you, um, follow that up, but then see, do some research if there is a national park that represents that history. So rather than trying to guide someone's specific interest, because again, seem we have a room full of history buffs here. Um, my favorite overall national park site is the Washington Mall, but that's because um, I actually am a descendant of Ulysses S. Grant and, you know, politics love it. So I have to be a monuments geek for DC. Um, but if, if you have a friend who doesn't understand why the great outdoors are important and they haven't ever read Richard Lure's book, No Child Left in the Woods, that it is critical for our health and our well-being, um, especially as we're all experiencing right now being trapped inside. If you can't breathe fresh air, your brain will not survive. Um, so I think there are just some very, very fundamental um, elements that our national parks represent that are going to be required to exist if we want our citizenry to continue in perpetuity. Um, so, you know, it's really a wild world of adventure. And I also want to put one small plug in that national parks are economic drivers for the communities that surround them. Parks equal jobs, parks equal revenue. They have 300, 300 and 27.5 million visitors each year. So think how many bags of chips, how many blocks of sunscreen, how many um, purchases in a bookstore of a bookmark of a book. These aren't just something that, um, you know, hippie geeks say this is important um, to protect because we don't want anyone to own their own land. These are critical um, for many, many communities and small business owners that have um, canoe adventure trips, that have night sky, night skies, star, stargazing. So there is something for everyone in a national park. 
You just have to find the one that speaks to you. Yeah, that's a great point. They're great for tourism, great for the local tax bases, jobs, everything. And, and of course, our, our pure enjoyment. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I would just add one of the um, resources that I really like is um, the podcast America's National Parks. Um, they've been around a while and they actually go through just short snippets about different parks and tell stories from each one. Um, really interesting. And so uh, if you're interested in checking out a new podcast, that, and then of course, Ken Burns book, um, National Parks, and it's a very long book, very long listen, but I'm going to finish it someday. <laughs> uh, ladies, do you have anything else you would suggest, Chris or Jen, or you want to just move on to our green life hacks? I think you're on mute, Jen. <laughs> Did I get it? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, did you? Oh. Hello? <laughs> hey. Okay. Sorry. I don't know what's going on. I was just going to say um, I didn't get to really truly experience Yosemite. But we drove through it and we have to, we had to stop on the side of the road. I saw this beautiful lake and I had to take this like moment. I just saw this picture, you know, in my mind. I was like, pull over. I got to get this picture. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, so I definitely want to make a trip back there. So I appreciate everything that you guys do to fight to protect our lands and preserve them and keep doing what you do. We, we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yeah, and I got to see wolves. <laughs> we went, they had like um, they had the these like teepees with some Indians. <laughs> like we were we were just randomly like driving through, and then all we stopped with my family when I was a kid, and we were having a picnic, and all of a sudden these wolves just like came out of nowhere and kind of like stopped and stared at us, and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I got to see a real wolf. <laughs> So yeah, those, that was another moment that I definitely had but, um, when I grew up in California um, doing cool. that as a kid. So yeah. Well, and that's so, something we didn't really touch on much, but uh, that was kind of a really big success story from the national parks reintroducing the wolf and to Yellowstone, right? Because we had kind of decimated the population, and that's another great, um, you know, use of our parks is that we're helping to rehabilitate some of those populations. So. There's, there's just no downside to national parks. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> right. All right. Well, with that, we'll move on to our green life hack. So this is where we all share something that we've either discovered recently or that um, helps us live more sustainably in general. It looks like Jen has one ready to go. Hi. <laughs> okay. So I'm at my parents' house right now due to COVID. I escaped San Antonio and I'm in nature right now and I was looking around for what I was going to show for the green life hack and my mom is an artist and she recycles paper and um, turns it into you know sure. new products like journals or notebooks um, so here I know for those of you that are just listening you can't see this but this might entice you to you know actually see our faces so um, this is some recycled paper and then like you embed leaves into it and it's really pretty and this is an envelope. 
and it also has a bunch That's of so cool leaves and stuff. And so if you wanted to like instead of buying, you know, cards, you can like make your own uh, recycled paper with leaves and whatnot, and the envelope and all that. Does stuff. she make then, them with the seeds in them? I've seen paper where yeah. you can. Yeah, do those that. are in there too if you wanted to do that. But this is. Well, no, I don't think there's seeds in this particular one. But um, and then anyways, this one is like a piece of like MDF board, it looks like. Um, it's kind of thick, but yeah, she took like a, found a dead butterfly and <laughs> has beeswax over the top. So this can become like the cover of a book if you wanted to like, you guys like books. So, you know, you can make your own or, you know, a journal or whatever. <laughs> and here's another one you can do like imprinting of leaves. This is just like some imprinting of the leaves and then inside is all the recycled paper. That's so pretty cool. You can make your own stuff, folks. That's it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, Chris, yes. do you have something you'd like to share with our listeners? It is Plastic Free July. <gasps> Yay, it is. Thank it you for is. bringing that up. It's Plastic Free July. July. Um, and some of the stuff you can't do, obviously, because of COVID precautions, which are are in place for a reason. Um, but just, and so a lot of it, we already have to do, we already have to buy less cause we can't just go out to shopping malls or we have to be a little bit more patient with our purchases because we can't just go out and randomly get it right away. Um, so that's good. Um, so what's that that's forced me to do is reevaluate how we buy things in the house. Um, we just moved, almost two months ago and we had no furniture. So a really great one, if you can't avoid the four big uh, single use uh, plastics is um, another way to do it is Facebook marketplace. I didn't know about Facebook marketplace until we moved here. There's so much stuff for sale on Facebook marketplace. That's secondhand that people are just trying to get out of their house because donation centers are closed now. You can't, you, well, there's a couple of places here you can go to, but most donation depots are closed. So Facebook Marketplace has been a respite because we found um, a dresser, a sideboard, um, two chairs, and we have, I have a long list. But it's all secondhand. A lot of it's antique, um, and it's in really good condition because it's just people clearing out their stuff because they've got nowhere else to go because we're all stuck inside. Yeah. So yeah, and, I've uh, got secondhand. boxes and boxes. I need yeah. to post or donate myself. Yeah, and and everybody's been really great. Um, if we if people haven't worn masks, it's just been set outside. Um, it's been clean. Everything is through e-transfer, so it's okay to to do that with Facebook Marketplace. But you Canadians are much more trusting than well. than us Americans. Sometimes you guys well. leave. Money dishes on the side of the road. I saw them. <laughs> I did that the other day. I picked up a bouquet of flowers from my mom on the side of the road. And you just, just leave the money pot there for yeah. people. They'll pay us, you know. Well, they had cut up old cut up quilts to take with you to dunk in the water to wrap around the stems of the flowers so that they don't dry out. So I, I thought of you when that. It's adorable. Happened. We have a big Amish Mennonite community up here, and at the ends of their laneways, they sell flowers or produce or whatever and nobody's out there it's just the honor system and they have like a little bucket or whatever and you put it in there except on Sundays 
Awesome. Well, that's a great hack. Um, mine is, this is uh, my old card, but a National Parks um, annual pass. Um, I need to renew mine for this year, but you can buy them this, I think it was 80 bucks um, for the year and you get into every national park in the country that accepts them, which is most unless they're, um, you know, specific, like the, the Waco Mammoth one doesn't count because it's a tour, but I've used this also. Um, it's good at the Forest Service locations, Corps of Engineers, uh, BLM lands, and a lot of the recreational areas. So if you go to even one or two parks a year, um, depending on the park, it's really worth it because like Rocky Mountain National Park was like 40 bucks to get in, I think, because they make you get the whole week. Um, so if you're going to go there and like one other park, you know, I'd say just get this. Plus, even if you don't, you know, get $80 out of it, you're supporting the park service and that's never a bad thing. So my, my life hack is to get a, a national parks pass or if you don't live near any, um, maybe a state parks pass. I'm also a Texas state parks pass holder and that gets you in all the state parks for like 60 bucks a year. Um, pays itself off pretty quickly if you hike as much as I do. <laughs> Um, Alan, do you have a green life hack to share with our listeners? Yeah, I don't know if it's a green life hack, but um, certainly what's working for me right now is naps. Um, ever since we have been working from home and getting the two thumbs up, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, you know, we left the office when we got the warning about COVID-19 and people were making jokes. Are you going to be able to work with your fuzzy slippers on it and your PJs? no. Um, we average 927 Zoom calls every day, it seems like. And so being able to power down around midday and uh, take a nap, check out for a bit, shut off the stuff, shut off my mind for a little bit. I'm not sure who invented the siesta, but they deserve a medal of honor um, from all the countries on the planet. And that's my life hack right now is just being able to tune out for a bit, recharge, and then come back stronger in the afternoon. I was going to say the countries that do siestas have it figured out because they take like the afternoon off and then go back to work. And I could, I could live that life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. When we went to Spain, we went to Spain for our honeymoon and we did not know like how serious the siesta <laughs> situation was because I was hungry at like Everything two o'clock and nothing <laughs> yeah. was open, <laughs> like nothing. So yeah. But yeah, I appreciate that they take time for some self-care. So yes, very important. Yeah, definitely a green sustainable uh, practice because you're re regenerating your body and then you're able to, to do more and you're more relaxed. So Dallas, uh, what's your green life hack? Well, this is like the perfect convergence because Jen showed my favorite butterfly on one of her mom's cards. And Chris, I did not know, this is bad, I did not know that it was Plastic Free Month, but that's my typical hack because I spend so much time on the road and um, I'm going to admit I love straws, but it's not a problem because my hack that I buy for myself and everyone, um, right before we had to go in lockdown, are collapsible reusable metal straws. And I always found... Um, you know, that I would wash them and leave them drying in the sink and then I get back in my car and, oh, I don't have it on me. But now they're collapsible and they come in a plastic tube so you can hook it to your backpack or easily fit it in your glove box. 
So that's my new um, Christmas present. Hopefully my family's not listening until Christmas <laughs> to the podcast or they're going to be, <laughs> or they'll be saying, can I just have my Christmas present now? Um, and I love, um, Jen, that you have a national parks pass to show because there's also a senior pass at a discounted rate and disabled veterans get a free national park pass. Um, so that's a great way to also re-engage your friends and family and neighbors who um, have served our country and allow them to also seek some self-care, um, as Alan brought up, by seeking respite in the great outdoors and getting a chance to reconnect with their loved ones and once they're back home. Yes, that is awesome. And there are a lot of holidays that have free admission as well, right? I believe, I believe all federal holidays, um, the parks are free to go enjoy. Yeah. They're also going to be the busiest days of the year that you might want to avoid. But if you're feeling courageous and you want to fight the crowds once we're out of COVID, um, it's a good way to, to test the waters there. Well, thank you all so much for being on. Um, let's go around and let folks know where, where they can find you online. Jen, would you like to start? Is, is it the same as always right here on Sustainably Geeky? Yep, you have exclusive rights to me. That's it. I'm so honored. <laughs> Chris, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me here on Sustainably Geeky, uh, Marginally Geeky, our book club, uh, Epically Geeky, which is the top of the umbrella, um, uh, Creatively Geeky, and then on Instagram at The Borough Life very creative with our names on this uh this podcast channel there is a there is a pattern good branding, good branding. Yeah. <laughs> um alan where can we find you online uh people can check out some of my writing and some of my articles by logging onto the npca website at www.npca.org great and dallas where can we find you online they can also find me on the MPCA website under the Texas landing page or um, LinkedIn is my only social media because it got, it was getting carried away. It was too much. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> um, you can find me here on Sustainably Geeky and most of the shows Chris mentioned, Marginally Geeky, Creatively Geeky and Epically Geeky. Um, those are all monthly shows as well. And we try to stagger those out. Um, I'm also on social media at Het's Gonna Be Me, and you can find the show Sustainably Geeky on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and I have to plug our next episode is going to be a bonus um, with some folks from NPCA again, talking about a site that they are uh, working on getting turned into a national park site. And, and I believe that's the Blackwell School. Is that correct, yes. Alice? Yes, and, in Marfa. And that's out in, yeah, in West Texas in Marfa, which is one of my favorite places in the world. So if you're interested in learning more about that and the process and kind of what that site is all about, check us out um, kind of mid-month we'll, or, or between our two episodes um, that'll be going up. Um, and yeah, check out the, the, the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating or whatever your uh, rating of choices. And um, we appreciate you listening. Have a great rest of your evening.
This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. <laughs>